Hello and welcome to Patmos. Today I'm going to be talking to Cyprian, uh, formerly known by many of you as Vin Armani, who no longer goes by that name, or um, basically that, that moniker and all the things that went along with it as he has continued his spiritual uh, journey in orthodoxy. And we talked today about the Eucharist, mortal sin, and the reception of it uh, in the somewhat in the context of the kind of the current crisis in the uh, Catholic Church uh, in its renderings unto Caesar, um, actually more renderings unto Christ in the form of, uh, of Caesar's presence, and kind of our different takes on how we approach this problem um, that is filtered through both uh, not just East and Western Christian traditions, but also kind of our individual personalities. Um, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this episode. Uh, first, I'd like to ask that if you are capable, please go on iTunes, leave a rating and review. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please go ahead and um, like the video, share it, and subscribe. I would appreciate all of that very, very much, and I appreciate you guys listening and any help that you can and do provide, and, and would appreciate your prayers as well. So thank you, and without further ado, uh, here is my uh, talk with Cyprian. How's everything uh, going in Saipan? Good, man, good. Like, um... This week has been this week has been a lot of rest. Just got done with it's 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 quite the transition the last few months I will tell you, and then um, and then my spiritual father came here, and then my godfather, who's a reader in the church, came here, and just getting everything set up. I mean, we had to build. I had to find a space for a chapel, and then I had to build the you know get all the stuff to build the chapel, and they came with icons and like the whole. It's kind of cool because the I, I guess the um, I don't know whether it's the Russian church or the Serbian church they actually sell like a catacomb kit basically for priests. Okay. <laughs> so, so it's like because you know they've been forced into they've been forced into um, doing services in in catacombs between the Greeks and the serbians and the russians like over the last 500 years so many times that now they just like sell basically like church in a box you know and so it's pretty awesome like he rolls in with this suitcase you know like this giant it looks like a giant like mobster suitcase and like opens it up and like there's everything inside the gospel book like everything's all gilded and everything it was pretty awesome and then built out this chapel and uh you know then did like on your property or or no else? no no actually it was it the way that it worked out was crazy um my so i was looking around looking around because there's a lot of like open spaces here but we needed both well technically we didn't end up needing water but we definitely needed power and so it was like okay well where are we going to do this power and so i found a couple of spaces but all the places looked it was going to take a lot of work you know and everything and it's just it wasn't right. And then we needed it close to water. Uh, we needed it close to the ocean because it's like to do the baptism and everything. And, you know, it just so turned out that like my friends of ours here, they're, they're renovating um, this little boutique hotel and they're going to put, there's 
they got a license to do like a cannabis lounge in there because it's legal here. And so they had renovated the inside of this cannabis lounge and it was just empty, but renovated across the street from the beach. And so it just like, it just totally turned out and we ended up doing it there and it was absolutely, it was hot because we had this, they didn't have the air conditioner in. So we had to bring in a portable AC and it was hot, but, um, but, but, you know, they, they kind of liked it. They were like, yeah, this feels, this is a real mission, you know, sweating through the liturgy and like, we're really working, you know? So they're like, yeah, this is, this is right. This feels good. This is how you, how you do it. But it was the first Orthodox services here. Oh, really? Ever, ever. So like my baptism was the first baptism. And then the next day they did um, my wife and I's marriage in, in the church, which was awesome because we have a big Russian community. Um, and then, you know, liturgy every day, Vespers every day. So it was pretty intense. And and then, you know, and, and then besides that, just like my spiritual father just sitting and just, you know, just dropping knowledge for, for like four days. It was pretty overwhelming. So, um, yeah, it was quite the experience, bro. So like, I'm just, I'm back recovering from that now. It was crazy. And uh, it's actually interesting because I, I was, I saw this video and it's uh, Spain somewhere where they have like the, the um, basically like the largest, uh, oh gosh, I forget the, it's not tonsure. Um, I forget the name anyways, uh, um, where the, where the incense is held and, and burns. Um, oh, sense. Thirst- yeah, and and they have this massive one at this church, and mm. you basically they start to pull on this rope, and this thing's like it looked like it was it was the size of a five gallon bucket or something, or maybe Whoa. even larger than that, and then it starts swinging across the whole church. Whoa! And so it just spreads incense all across it, and a lot of people that go do the uh, the walk, the one of the pilgrimage yes. walks uh, through Spain, uh, the Camino there, and then. You know, a bunch of people commenting, and then somebody had mentioned it, and so I went and looked it up. And one of the one of the side reasons that they kind of started to use incense, uh, apart from the symbolic and the historical aspect too, is that a lot of times it was burned um, uh, on a regular basis too, because people it was so hot. Yep. Uh, there was no, you know, bathing was quite low, yep. so a lot of times that just kind of, in in you know, the smell of body odor, I imagine would. Uh, kind of detract from the the feeling of holiness as well so adding that incense kind of mm-hmm. keeps your mind focused on that versus your neighbor's funk yeah. um but but it, it was actually it's a really cool uh video it's one of the places me and my wife have been talking about wanting to go is is to actually do that we'd have to wait till the kids are older you know it's one thing that if you have like one kid to ask somebody to watch them uh, for like a week but when you got you know three four or whatever um, well, incense, it, incense, and it's a big, smoke, big ask. Incense and smoke are pretty, they seem to be pretty universal across every culture in terms of um, spiritual practices or what would be considered like litur- liturgical practices, but also mm-hmm. shamanic practices. It seems like even every culture, even though disconnected, smoke and some sort of fragrant. So whether that's everything from tobacco to incense, you know, all of the it's it's interesting that every culture settles on 
that that becomes a part of it that somehow that's important you know or it's even within the secular space you see that you know rock concerts and whatnot yeah. with uh smoke fireworks machines. and smoke machines yeah 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 there's uh so i mean the orthodox tradition is says that it's um you know that it makes the invisible visible which is interesting you know that it's like then you can see you know because then you can see obviously the the air you can start to see the air like moving and whatnot and of course you know so spirit is is breath or wind and all of that so it would make spirit in the literal sense visible it's an interesting idea yeah because all the the stories especially a lot of times whenever the divine comes there there's a you know wind uh mm-hmm. some sort of movement of the air or even when the the descent of the holy spirit at pentecost it was a mm-hmm. a great rush of air came into mm-hmm. the room um and it's always a really interesting image too of the apostles at that point because they're pretty much freaking out um don't know what to do they're pretty much being hunted and mm-hmm. uh and uh, uh you know be- or i should say before christ comes and then after that they're still um you know, try to figure out what to do. And then when the Holy Spirit descends upon them, it's kind of like uh, an orient, uh, like uh, the, the fullness of the orientation of where they were going, uh, just kind of uh, both united them and then sent them off in different directions in that union of, of, of their mission. Well, I mean, Pneuma, right? Or Numa is the, is the spirit. This also breath, right? So breathing the spirit, the, the breath of life, all of that. And I find it, I found it interesting since the beginning that, you know, we've been, there's been this respiratory, well, there you go, respiratory, right? There's spirit right in that word. Respire, it's the same, spiritus, it's the same thing. So that we've had a respiratory thing that's been going and that, you know, it's brought in the Church of Woke and it's just like, it's very interesting, man. It's very, uh, very symbolic right there. Well, it's uh, actually that was what I, I wanted to do. And we started off before we had the discussion was I was, I was just going to open up with a prayer. And, and uh, ir- ironically enough, um, uh, it's it's, uh, you know, come Holy Spirit was the, the, the name of the prayer, the breath of God. Um, Let's do it, man. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant in us the same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess probably just jump right in uh, to kind of what we we were going to talk about, and I... Um, First, I guess, before we even get into that, is just to let everybody who's listening kind of know that neither Vin nor I, um, uh, you know, are calling ourselves experts in, you know, theology or apologetics um, or, you know, uh, sort of a definitive sources for uh, each of our traditions. And, you know, for me personally, uh, I kind of talked to you a little bit somewhat offline about that months back when I was thinking about starting, uh, you know, Patmos and, I was kind of reticent about it. And mostly it's just because I, I have this fear where previously on the podcast, if, 
if I messed up some terminology or something with Bitcoin, I mean, there could be consequences where somebody decided I'm going to, you know, whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to go all in and, and lose some money or whatever. But I mean, it's still kind of on them, but it, it's still very material uh, consequences. Whereas in, I just always have this fear of when I talk to anybody about the faith, which in itself is an issue of mine. I just always have this fear of being the committing a sin of scandal, of being a stumbling block or giving bad information or something along those lines. So I just, uh, uh, just thought I'd throw that out there that, you know, should be assumed. Um, I'm not a, a theology expert, PhD of any sorts. Um, but just going off of my limited knowledge. And it's one of the things I've really been kind of diving into is I kind of put aside a little bit my looking at um, uh, contemplative prayer, mental prayer, and, and realizing I also really need to start digging into um, some of the less, not less fun, but uh, just really kind of understanding the faith better and not just the, what I'd gotten in knowledge so far. So I've, you know, start to reread the the catechism or at least, a, or I should say a book by Father Sprago like 150 years ago that goes in depth on every you know, piece of it from, you know, just the, the, the basics of uh, Trinitarian doctrine to uh, kind of the more minute uh, aspects of it. But um, but anyways, I thought I'd get that out of the way. But what Vin and I had talked about was it originated on Twitter. Um, and I thought I'd just read this so that yeah. if people hadn't seen it, um, they would have a better idea of why we're talking about what we're talking about. And there was a uh, Catholic theologian, I mean, I disagree highly with pretty much a lot of what he, uh, his takes are on it, but, but that's a side point. Um, Bishop Strickland had uh, tweeted out a photo from a parish priest and he put into what looks like the, the bulletin, the weekly bulletin for the, for the parish. Um, and basically they were talking about the, the reverence for the Eucharist, but I'll just read it word for word what he had. Many Catholics attending Mass today receive our Lord in the Eucharist and do not think about what they are doing. Statistics, pewresearch.org, show that only about a third of Catholics believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and a good majority of Catholics do not agree with some of Mother Church's teachings. Heresy. Please respect our Lord in the Eucharist. Receive the sacrament of reconciliation and pray before and after receiving him. By consuming our Lord, you are publicly saying that you agree with everything that the Catholic Church teaches. If you do not agree with all the Church's teachings, um, even if you disagree with only one teaching, you should not receive Holy Communion. Thank you for your consideration of this matter. Please pass this information to your family and friends. And then uh, Massimo Fascioli had retweeted this um, from Bishop Strickland and put his own take. They said he takes very seriously what the Church teaches, but this is a sectarian view that is contrary to Catholicism. And I uh, retweeted that with a, basically agreeing uh, with that point, but then we kind of got more into, into the weeds of it. And if people are really that interested, they can go in and find that exchange, but we'll, we'll talk more about it here. So um, I guess I'll just turn the, turn the table over to you. Cause you were saying uh, you, you know, you disagreed with the take. You had some questions about what the church teaches and, and uh, you were saying that it's not necessarily specificity. That was the issue. So I think, you know, you started, you started this out and I think it was a very, very good, much more than a disclaimer, really. I think that it's a, a good place to start 
is that and for for me as well i feel the same to even begin to discuss these things i think that approaching it with a, a sense of my spiritual father would say a sense of dread is probably the the right way to go that precision is important and i think that if we look at the history of the church if we go back and we look at the ecumenical councils that most people who are not Christians and who do not have like a really, who are not looking for a deep understanding of the faith, if they are Christians would look at where the disagreements were and would say, I don't understand what's, where's the scandal on these little tiny, what's the difference? What's the difference between, you know, uh, uh, two essences or one essence. Like it looks basically the same. Like what's, is this just semantics and whatnot? And so I think that your desire to approach these, and I, I, I have the same concern, front of mind, right? That it's like, let, let, me, let me be able to, to do this as precise as possible and let me be able to say, I don't know in the places where I really don't know, right? Rather than to make conjecture. And I think that when I read that bulletin, what I, what I got from it was, that that the person who wrote that was not was was not in that same space let's just say that right so for the for the first part of that bulletin the idea that people are participating in the eucharist without a full understanding of what's going on th- that that's that's undeniable right and i know it's it's undeniable for me because like while i was baptized uh, Roman Catholic in infant baptism. I was raised in the Episcopal Church, which accepts that baptism, so I didn't need to be rebaptized, but which also does not have confirmation before communion, which is the same as the Orthodox Church. So, which is which is the sort of the original way that it's like baptism and or chrismation, which would basically happen at the same time, uh, depending on where where in the the history of the church you are then immediately entitles you to, uh, to to be able to partake in the Eucharist, right? So like my five-year-old has. My two-year-old, if she would do it, would be able to. Um, there's no confirmation required, like in, as in the Catholic Church. The baptism and chrismation is at the same time. So I, I was participating in Holy Communion from the time, I, I don't know, maybe five or six years old in the Episcopal Church. Uh, because that's that's how it was. I was baptized. I I, w- I was able to. Now, did I know what what was going on? Really, not really. I've only just now uh, becoming a, a catechumen in the Orthodox Church, learning. I've only just now understood more as I'm understanding more. But also, I think having a, a background in other spiritual practices, particularly those that required consuming certain things in a ritual setting. I'm even able to have like sort of a broader understanding of of where this fits in in terms of the the if we would call it spiritual technology. I hate to use that term, but sort of where it fits in in terms of um, our 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 access to the celestial realm, um, where how it how the consumption of sacred items, because you know Christians weren't the first to to do this. And it's not that this was something that was copied necessarily, but it's just, just as we were talking about with incense, it's something that 
as you start to commune with the spiritual realm, this is one of the patterns that tends to that tends to show up over and over and over again. And so it's very important. And it's a topic where precision is really necessary. And I think that, you know, I think in our exchange, you brought up some good points. Um, I do not think that, I don't think that this person was willingly, who wrote this was willingly tried to, trying to lead somebody down the wrong path. I understand that perhaps the wording was meant to be expedient, you know, speaking to the, let's say, lowest common denominator, hate to use that term, but, you know, speaking to speaking to the lowest common denominator, trying to make it if, efficient use of words, all of these things. But I think that this is a too, much too important of a topic for that for that to be for for it to be handled in that way. Now again, I'm not trying to like I'm not trying to make judgment on this priest. Maybe there's a greater context of things that have happened within his parish. I'm sure that there is and that that's the reason why he has it in there. Um but, you know, as we as we discuss like that second part where he says participating in the Eucharist is an acknowledgement that you agree with everything that the church teaches and that you shouldn't take it even if you disagree with one thing that the church teaches. You know, while we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt about which teachings he's referring to, um, you know, as as we explored in, in our exchange, technically, in in the Catholic Church, that's technically wrong. So like there are some there there is a collection of church teachings that it so long as there's correct deference and piety that's given to church authority that you can disagree with. Right. And so it's like I know we know he wasn't or we're going to assume he wasn't talking about those things, but it's imprecise. And so I think that like in this conversation, what I would hope to do is to talk about, you know, not it, it, it isn't actually just the. It, it isn't for me. The problem is it isn't just the lack of precision, but it is also. I think I think in in that regard, I would just like to talk more about. I would like to talk more about why. I would like to, I would like to talk more about the depth that's missing there, because for me, it seems like. Even to not, even to not, ha- it's not about whether or not you have the precision, but to even not have the precision, almost belies a, a, for me, a shallowness of what the Eucharist is. And so, like that's that's something that I would like to like to talk more about in particular is to is to dig into what where the patterns are, and and what is happening during the Eucharist. Yeah, so I, I think to uh, provide the the greater, I mean, this is kind of coming out around the same time that there's big debate within the church, or I shouldn't say really debate, because it's it's one of those things that really shouldn't even be debated. But you know, nevertheless, um, you know, there, well, I guess throughout all of church history, um, even from the earliest days, there's a lot of things that we would look back now and go like, why was this even a debate about X, Y, or Z? But um, so when we, you know, it, this is a lot about, cause the, the conference of Catholic bishops in America, it was set to start, um, the kind of the, the conservative, uh, traditional type of 
bishops are have been pushing because this has been a sticking point for a lot of years of do we allow politicians who call themselves Catholic to receive the Eucharist if they um, push forward policies and support policies that are in direct uh, opposition to the faith. Abortion being probably the, the penultimate one, right? So for Biden, he has uh, been a supporter of abortion for a very long time. Nancy Pelosi as well. Um, and there's been a lot of push to not allow uh, it's it's less about the average person, although you know this can be abused and and you know there there could be you know priests that go well I'm not going to give them you know the the Eucharist because I think that this person is engaging in sin or something. This is more about the context is about politicians who are very public and are you know in a way even though they're not church leaders they're prominent Catholics leading members of the faith to think that, well, I guess it's okay if the church allows them to, you know, continue to be uh, not declared anathema in one way or the other uh, from the church. If they're continuing to allow to participate fully, you know, what's the difference between them, um, you know, actually having the power to push forward these policies and me to have a Planned Parenthood um, um sign up in my yard. So that's kind of the, the more context, I think that what, what this is about. Um, in that specific case, I, I would say that, um, you know, both of our traditions hold that if one is in a state of, of, of mortal sin, um, that you should not approach. It's, it's not necessarily the priest's job to read your mind to determine that and deny that to you. But as a um, individual to receive the body of Christ, when you're in that state is, is itself, you know, consuming Christ into kind of basically a, a, a dirty house. Um, and that's why, you know, the, the tradition has been for a very long time that that's something that's not, you're supposed to, um, you know, fast prior to, uh, reception of the Eucharist, supposed to go to uh, confession and and uh, get rid of those sins off your soul so that you're kind of this uh, more pure temple for to, to receive the body of Christ. Um, now, when it comes to things like that, I think that there there is definitely a case to be made for, you know, someone who is public, uh, a very public official, promoting something that is... Um, against church teaching for that to, to be done. Um, as far as to dig down deeper into what I think more of what we're talking about or what you're getting at is the um, everything that the church teaches. And from my uh, understanding of, of what this, what this means that the church has, and we went over this in the thread of basically there's different levels of, Basically, the you know certainty of uh, that the church imports on different uh, matters of faith, right? So um, there's you know six different levels. Um, the very top is uh, um, of the faith, de fide, um, which is things that are explicit in scripture, tradition, things like that. Um, uh, you know that that Christ was the Son of God, right? Um, that He died on the cross. Things like that are of the faith. You you have there's no ifs, ands, or buts about these things. It's basically, you know, everything that you'll read in the creed are all considered uh, 
part of that as well. And then there's differing levels that go down. All of them kind of still have, for the most part, some level of mortal sin attached to it for denial of these truths. But it, it, there are some situations where it's kind of dependent. Um, and all of these things are considered the teachings of the church, but there's varying levels. And I'm, I'm sure you've probably noticed that is that within, uh, within Rome, uh, it's very Roman in the sense of being very uh, kind of litigious, um, much more so than the Eastern churches of very, you know, having kind of codified laws and all these sorts of things. It's a lot more, you know, paper to pen. You can read these things where in, in the East, there's not really a, you know, really a code of canon law in the same way that there is in Catholicism. There's the canons of the ecumenical councils, but um, beyond that, there's not that that same le level of kind of litigiousness and, and kind of going down. And there, there's a lot of different reasons for that. But um, when it comes down to things like it's the church has like so for like a Marian apparition, like the Our Lady of Fatima, the church has determined that they believe that that is in fact a true apparition of Our Lady coming down to earth. But it is not uh, to the level where it has to be believed. You are not incurring any sin by saying, well, I don't, I don't think that, you know, this, even if the church has said, we do believe that this is true, that doesn't fall into that. But it is still part of church teaching per se that they believe that this is true. And that's kind of at the lower levels, the probable teachings um, where there's well-founded um, uh, arguments from, you know, people in various uh, authorities within the church, as far as for dogma, believe that, it, you know, it's likely to be true, but you can pretty much discard it if you, if you don't want to and incur no penalty. It's highly encouraged. It's like, you know, kind of like a office fun day or something like that. Highly encouraged, but not required. Um, and I think that that is definitely something that within their specificity is, is very important when you say, even if you disagree with one teaching, I will say that, you know, like your lowest common denominator uh, um, statement as I, I think that it, that, that does hold true uh, is that most of the time when, when you're talking about somebody sitting in the pews, if they get talked to by a Protestant friend or whatever, or they read something in, in a magazine that says, well, the Catholic church teaches X, Y, or, or whatever. Um, most of the time we're not talking about, you know, Our Lady of Fatima or uh, did Judas actually receive the body of Christ at the Last Supper or, um, you know, things of that nature that are at that low level that you don't have to believe necessarily and you can disagree freely. Uh, more often than not, the, the things that I think the priest was trying to get at, and that's where specificity would be very important, is the rampant kind of encroachment of modernism especially in in terms of social morals of you know cohabitation um sex before marriage um same-sex uh, uh you know relationships uh things like that i think is more of what they're talking about and those are you know teachings of the church that have been you know ratified uh it's not that these things can't be also these aren't to the level uh, necessarily of de fide but um they're also you know, proximate to the faith, theologically certain, to the extent that there is some room where theology, uh, uh, you know, people kind of in that theology field uh, will argue and write articles about why 
um, and they're not necessarily, but they're, you can kind of start to skirt lines there. And I don't think that that priest was um, getting at that. I do agree that it was a very bad wording uh, to say that there's not one, but I do also think that most of the people that are going to read that are going to be thinking about the big things that are for the most part decided and not necessarily the lesser um, un undecided, but um, um, unsure of things or, or pretty, pretty well sure, but, but not uh, definitive. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, again, like I, I totally agree. I, I get the, I get the, the technical can, can we can we agree though that like the actual words written are incorrect in terms of like what what he wrote is can we can we agree that it's technically incorrect yes it's okay. yeah because it says you know if even if you don't agree or you know don't agree with one of the yes. teachings you should right. not receive holy communion and it's uh, it it would be correct that if you disagree with any definitive teaching of the church yes. that incurs a mortal sin, you know, that would be correct because then you're, you're in that state where you are an improper vessel to, to receive the body yes. of Christ. Yes. And, and so, so I think that there's also, and, and this is a bit of a distinction. And for me, it's, it's one, it's one of the reasons why, and, and perhaps this is my temperament, perhaps this is my, uh, personal experience, my, my travels, but it's one of the reasons why certainly uh, Catholicism has, has, has never, there's never been a, a draw for me. Right. And it's, be, it's, it's primarily because of, it is because of this, let's say, I don't want to say a lack of, because I know that there is, I was going to say a lack of mysticism, but I know that there is a mystical tradition within the Catholic Church, but that the let's let's say the the focus is a lot less on the mystical, uh, whereas it is on the um, it is on the more practical or intellectual. So, and what I mean by that is, um, so of course in in every tradition and should be should be even into the Protestant tradition, although I think it's fallen away in many of them, but um, certainly in the, the, the older traditions, there is the idea that you should not receive the Eucharist if you are not in a state of grace. And what that means uh, is, is obviously going to be different, but certainly, you know, I'll give you just kind of anecdotally um, conversation that I had with my spiritual father, where he was talking about, we were talking about he had come here to Saipan and was talking about some of the Russian community coming and and uh, participating in the liturgy. And, you know, I was asking him, I was like, well, should you how are you going to arrange for for them to confess? Shouldn't they have confessed bef beforehand? There's no church here. So, you know, the chances of them having recently confessed or even confessed for years is probably pretty low. And he said, well, look, that's not my it's not my job. And, and, and generally, that's kind of the, the rubric uh, with Orthodox is that, you know, you, you would confess such that you would be in a state of grace. Also fasting beforehand, obviously, refraining from marital relations um, the day before, praying, all of these things uh, before and after. This is, all, this is all common between the churches, but that it would primarily not be a matter of what you believe and what you, I mean, will you 
you're, you're obviously you you believe the tenets you're able to say the creed and then you know most people are not theologians where they would have dug into the ecumenical councils but they would they would believe to to the best you know to the best of their their understanding and knowledge of of the faith and then they would have confessed and then therefore they would be in a state of grace and the you know the 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 priest is going to hold the 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 host up and say uh, dur- during the liturgy he says the holy things are for the holy and it is it's it's just that that it's like you're you are accepting something holy into you and as you say it's like it's not it's not meant to be a dirty house but this is in a this is in a very mystical standpoint and i'll give you anecdotally you know he was talking about cuz he's he's a serbian orthodox so that's the church that i was brought into and he was talking about the fact that that uh you know many serbs speaking about you know ethnic orthodox it's like you know many of them will not go to church but they'll die for it and i think this is similar to you know mexicans with the catholic church or italians with the catholic church that they may not go to they may not ever attend church but they would certainly die for it and uh, you know, saying that they 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 might not confess and they would go and he he'd say, well, they wouldn't even come and and take communion because they'd fear that they would burst into flames, right? So it isn't even it's it's not even a matter of and he was being quite serious about it. It wasn't like he he wasn't being facetious that that deeply seeded within them was the idea that like i am right now not holy and if i were to take communion right now something very bad would happen to me something very bad i'll get in a car crash something truly terrible will happen i'll get sick um and and it's it's not a matter it's not about a political stance that someone has or or doesn't have and i think that this is for for me coming from having you know spent decades exploring other let's say spiritual practices that now I've, i i fully deny and understand that th- that those were um let's let's say deceptions or to to be kind that they are at least um you know people who who were not yet exposed to the true kingdom and uh, many of those people once exposed, those cultures once exposed, they they dropped those. But in in all of those cases, there is this idea that you are not going to ingest the 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 god or spirit uh, for the ones that do have some some ceremony of ingestion if you are not same sort of situation uh, fasted, prayed, uh, re- refraining from marital relations, all of these things. You know, that's uniform. So like the ayahuasca dieta, same thing, same idea, right? So this is just a, this is an idea of a spiritual practice and a spiritual uh, technology and the way that you properly receive this communion, regardless of the spirit that is going to be, that is going to abide in you through that. Um, and, you know, the, this, the, the process this is what the church is a bridge for. That's why it is the the pinnacle of our practice is because we are entering into a a a one to one in both the spiritual and the physical relationship with our Lord. And 
that it is from that relationship that the church exists. And it is for that reason that the church exists. And it, there, there is a feeling to me. And again, this may just be my temperament. And again, this is why I'm, I'm, I'm not a Roman Catholic is that the political entering into that space that, you know, we have to decide whether or a political entering into that space is for me, there's, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth, no pun intended, but that ultimately we have to be the ones who decide whether or not we're going to burst into flame. We have to be the ones who decide uh, whether or, whether or not we are in a state of grace and that it is the, it, it is the, the, the clergy is there to, and the priest is there to assist us in getting into that state of grace. But ultimately, we are responsible for, while, while the church is there and has a deep responsibility to save those souls who want to be saved, it is ultimately our responsibility to decide whether or not we are in a state of grace. And so if what is, the, the idea that what would be taught is, and, and the message that is being given to the laity is if, if X person, there's, there's a subtext there. And the subtext is something like, you know, there are these public persona out there who are taking political stances that the institution of the church does not agree with politically. And therefore, perhaps they should not be receiving the Eucharist. And... I think that's definitely a subtext. And the reason why I would say that I think that it's reasonable for me to say that's a subtext is because I feel like that's, that's sort of what you just said that the, the priests, that the subtext was, if that makes sense, right? As we read into this and we gave him the benefit of the doubt, that appears to be the subtext. At least that's what you pulled out of it. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, this isn't new or, or necessarily uh, Catholic in origin, I, I was listening to. It, it was it was a it was a YouTube video, anyways, on on some of the saints, and uh, one of them was uh, Saint Ambrose, um, and he was uh, a bishop in Milan. I mean, that would put him within, you know, the the Roman realm versus the Eastern, but he is venerated uh, by both uh, by both traditions, and Ambrose. Um, and this kind of showed the kind of this kind of the ascending power of the of the bishops and uh, during during that time and it was about three ninety um, and Emperor Theodosius the Great had there was some sort of riot in Thessalonica and apparently you know it's it's one of those things it's hard to tell the exact numbers but there were uh, thousands that were massacred when he went in there with the troops basically to put it all down and. Ambrose was uh, basically disgusted uh, by, by the behavior, this idea of just uh, in, in the midst of the Christianization of, of Europe, this idea of um, or the West as a whole uh, that, you, you, you know, that uh, an emperor who's supposedly a, a Christian um, is going to come in there and just go about um, murdering uh, civilians uh, uh, wholesale, you know, without any concern as to who is who. Uh, was was one of these uh, things that he just could not. So he ended up actually barring. He sent a letter. I believe it was a letter or 
or maybe it was just the painting that showed him blocking, but he told him basically he wasn't even going to let him in the cathedral at all um, until he um, repented publicly. And uh, apparently the emperor, you know, tried a couple of times and so they went back and forth. And then finally, when he showed himself uh, for repentance in front of the cathedral, Ambrose, you know, told him that he needed to, um, to seek repentance the way that David did. And uh, by doing that, uh, I guess it was about a month or so of public repre- repentance. It's very, um, you know, this was something that you saw more of the early church and their deference to political authorities and that you would see um, even throughout the Middle Ages to an extent to of, of high deference. And if they were wanted to be welcomed back into the bosom of the church um, and, you know, depending if they got excommunicated or not, uh, they would have to do, you know, public penances, take pilgrimage, things like that. But he had, he had to do a public penance uh, for a period of time. Uh, and I think that does have a correlation to to kind of this context and that promotion of abortion from, you know, from mine and the church's point of view is, is, is murdering. Um, and it's a heck of a lot more, especially if you look over the, the history of, uh, of his uh, period in, in um, the Senate and then vice president and presidency uh, was probably a heck of a lot more than, than just 3000. So I do think that there is historical precedent for these sorts of actions. Now, you know, once again, to, to what you were talking about uh, your spiritual father, when he came there and, and was kind of like, it's not my job. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of the, within Catholicism as well is kind of like this uh, you're not trying to read their minds and go, well, are they, or are they not? Cause there's also, I don't know about within orthodoxy, within Catholicism, there, there are uh, ways of conducting a confession. If you cannot get to a priest, maybe it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, black plague days too, especially where there were so many of the priests had died to the point where laymen were doing funerals and stuff uh, just because there's nobody available whatsoever. But anyway, it's not the priest's job to sit there and go like, Oh, I need to sit down with each of them, ask them when the last time of their confessions, there is that, I mean, Christianity is about personal responsibility. There is a level of community and how you, you know, present yourself, how you speak, what the words that you say, how you live your life as an example. And to, like I said, not, be a, a scandal, a stumbling block to other people. If you're just a, you know, a jerk and you yell at people, cut them off in traffic, but you got a big cross in the back of your thing that puts a bad taste in people's mouths who might have at some point in the, in the future been open to that conversation where now they're not because somebody had to pray the rosary bumper sticker on their car and it almost knocked them off the road. Right. Um, so it's not the priest's job to do that, uh, to, to be that, mind reader and, and do these sorts of things. And I've never been in a parish um, in, in my own subjective experience where uh, I've been denied communion or I've seen others per se. Uh, I've heard stories of people having that, but there was extenuating circumstances of which um, someone had, you know, gotten divorced without an annulment remarried and then was trying to come in where they were knowingly and publicly in a state of mortal sin where, where that did apply. And in, in a way the priests are not only, I think they look at these sorts of situations in, in two ways is that if someone is public about it and the priest knows about it, probably likely the parish knows as well. And so that on, on one hand you are um, 
by by kind of allowing that, you're almost permitting it and saying, well, um, if the priest allows them to be receiving the body of Christ, how, is it really a mortal sin? They're they're allowed to participate and and do everything within the church. Um, that, that can be a scandal unto itself. And secondly, as kind of watching out for that person, um, you have a degree of trying to keep people from incurring more sin upon them in the same way that if somebody said, you know, I want to go or, you know, would it be okay if I just don't believe that Christ was divine and the, you know, and the priest said, well, you know, you don't believe what you want to believe or, you know, I'm not saying it's exact correlation, but you have, you have almost, uh, there is a level of being your brother's keeper in terms of trying to keep them from falling further into a sin. And by uh, your kind of ascent in a way, uh, to that behavior that you're, you're kind of giving them the, the green light and the go ahead to continue on and kind of compounding that mortal sin of their life uh, with, uh, you know, continued mortal sin of receiving, of receiving the Eucharist. And um, I, I think that, you know, yeah, that there is, there is some, um, and that there's, there's other examples as well. That one just came to, to my mind and, and especially, you know, specifically that it was an early, um, example that uh, was done within when orthodoxy and Catholicism were were still uh, as one. I mean, I, I I agree with everything that you that you lay out there, and I think that it's I, I think that it's absolutely right. I, I you know I think the first thing is if if that principle was to be if we were talking about that principle, then what we we would be talking about would be a a bishop or high maybe even a priest but a bishop or higher probably in this case all the way to the top uh or maybe a, a, at least a cardinal i would say uh basically playing the playing the saint ambrose role and saying joe biden you are not welcome to even walk through the doors of the church uh, because of what you've done until you publicly repent but the church is not doing the Catholic church is not doing that. So Joe Biden is going to services every Sunday, as far as I know. Um, and so, and, and with that being said, I think that this is the issue that I have uh, or, or, or why there's something, there's something that feels odd and, and, and not good about what's in this bulletin. And, and the reason why I say that is, that it isn't, you know, it isn't specific. It isn't addressed to Joe Biden. Uh, we have to read into it that it may be about Joe Biden and, and abortion. And then if it is, you know, for a priest to put that to the people in his parish about, this is not a small thing, okay? This is about whether or not you're going to receive Eucharist. Like, as a Christian, this is, this is the biggest thing, really. Like, this is not, this is, if there's any place where politics should not enter, where, where like, that should be the last threshold that politics is able to walk over, it's got to be there. It has to be. In terms of all the things that the church does, it has to be. And I can't see any positive, because Joe Biden has not been kept from out of the church because Joe Biden has not been told 
by a cardinal or by the pope that he he is not welcome back until a period of public repentance then what we're left with in this parish is the idea that you know some of the people in that parish voted for joe biden for sure there's no doubt about it and what they're left with is parishioners who watch this person who they know voted for Joe Biden, who maybe has a Biden sticker on their car outside, who maybe had a Biden, you know, lawn sign, go up and receive the body of Christ. And this priest is, is, is dividing. He's, he's putting some doubt. He's putting, I mean, he's playing, he's, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, it feels very bad. Let's just put it like that. That that sort of sowing of, of 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 subtle discord is is not Christ-like. And um, in the vein of being related to the Eucharist, it leaves a very strange feeling with me. And it's why you know it's why I reached out to you and said, "Man, this thing is really sitting with." It sits very. I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt, right? But I, I would hope that you could see why that. Per- I'm not talking about. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about this specific situation and why somebody, a priest, doing this, and then it being supported would leave a a, a strange feeling. I'll just speak from. I'm not going to speak for all Christians, but I would say would leave a strange feeling with me. I, I think I don't know. I think I disagree. Uh, so I guess to to, to kind of lay out why um, I think that this should be something that the church is doing. That prominent people, if they want to confess that they are part of the Roman Catholic Church, that they, you know, it shouldn't be just like a, at the at the point of the bare minimum of just say, well, I carry rosary beads in my pocket, so that makes you devout, um, which is how, you know, he's constantly referred to. It's very interesting. I mean, this is more going into the media side of, of how they try to convince you of certain things where it's constantly mentioned when any kind of church teaching stuff or any kind of social issues are brought up regarding the administration, it's always the moniker of devout Catholic always comes out. Right. And that's not Biden's fault. I mean, I, I don't know if maybe he's his, you know, his people are pushing this as well. I wouldn't doubt that there's a lot of interplay, uh, but the idea of calling yourself devout and then also standing for basically any every position that he holds not every position i should say a a good chunk of his social positions that he holds are not just kind of like you know uh, uh, you know skirting the line a little bit of just going well you know in the first trimester or you know i think that you know maybe plan b because it has it implanted or something i mean he's he's very much i think that's partially because of his age but um i think that harder lines need to be taken by the church i think the soft touch um in the periods kind of of modernity has, as kind of uh, I think the fruits of that are being seen now of the, of this soft touch and not taking harder lines and proclaiming the truth. It's not what touch has the, what touch has the Catholic church taken at all with him? 
None. I mean, at oh, and I, and this is kind of what this is kind of what I'm saying is that it's like none officially, but but I mean, it there's support. There is there is heavy support within kind of what you'd call, I guess, the 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 liberal side of the of, of the of the church. And um, I mean, I know that you're not on Catholic Twitter, but I mean, there's specific names that that very much come up um, with with that who want to see a liberalization of the church. Now they can't quite. You can't go back and and change church teaching on x y or z that's already been definitively stated that's why you saw the council or the uh conference of uh, the doctrine of the faith issued that statement because the german bishops had asked about blessings of same-sex marriages not marriages themselves but can we bless a couple uh and the church came back and said you can't uh, you cannot bless a sin right and so this encouraged the german bishops to kind of go ahead and and call the bluff of it. And that's, that's a whole church internal politics things of how that's, that's working out. Um, but there is a whole side there that does now they can't raise money. They can't appear at, uh, um, you know, at rallies or anything like that, but they can speak kindly of that person of attest to their, their devoutness, um, and those types of things for the peer use of and that is a political use and it's always been a problem and always will be a problem um within the church and this isn't just a catholic thing it's just very much a lot more in the foursquare of america just because there's uh in the west because that's the main church there versus um uh say you know in russia with the russian orthodox church i'm, I'm sure if you're probably over there that there's not to the same levels uh of, of controversies and things like that but but there are you know, these sorts of things as, you know, do we appear with, with the president? Is that a proper thing to appear with Putin and all that kind of, uh, that kind of, course, of stuff? Of course. And, um, but I, I think that it, it's been an, a avowed neutral position of the church in modernity uh, to an extent. Um, I mean, like you, you saw this kind of during world war two, some of that was political for reasons where they weren't going to be outspoken against this person, that person per se, because, you know, what, what kind of uh, blowback on the faithful in various countries w could come working behind the scenes as far as for getting people out of those countries. But uh, I think, the you know, we're not necessarily, although we talk about what's coming at this point now, nor have we been for the last 20 or 30 years, that if the church came out and said, hey, if you're a politician, you want to call yourself Catholic, this is you need to avow this and you cannot do um, by, you know, they weren't at risk of anything. I think that there is a level of moral corruption that comes with specifically in the West, how the state has been able to get its fingers into the church. Uh, in America, I think there's a lot of reticence of bishops of actually talking about a lot of these social issues per se, because I think a lot of them are very afraid of losing tax exempt status, which you can as a religious organization, if you become overtly political. So you can't, appear at a Trump or Biden rally and say, you know, uh, the non-denominational church of whatever who currently has tax exempt status or the, you know, the, the Catholic diocese of Wichita, they can't say this diocese, this church or whatever uh, is endorsing and all of our faithful have to vote for this person. Uh, Cause then that can start to put you in problems with the IRS. I think I don't have any proof or documents to show, but I do really feel that a lot of that has to do with that. I think a lot of the, what's closed down during the uh, lockdowns had to do with that. 
Um, there's a lot of money coming into parishes that are dioceses that are hurting right now or have been hurting for a lot of years. Uh, there was a lot of money to come in if you're kind of abiding by the program. And I think that is a level of moral corruption. Well, it's render uh, unto Caesar, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it's kind of an off topic, but it, it, just that there is nothing that's really... It's not that I, you know, obviously want any of the other scandals that the church has had in in, in these decades, um, or think that you know they're they're lesser. So, but there was there was nothing quite as poignant because you know you have individuals corrupt. You know, somebody did this thing, this person covered it up, but to to basically deny the faithful across the West of the access to the sacraments uh, that blew my mind because this is not just like, Oh, well you can't come in and, and, you know, uh, you know, do a rosary in here or pray. Although those are important things, but like literally confessions and uh, extreme unction at the time of death and baptisms. I mean, there's very severe consequences if you cannot get access to those things when you want to. It's one of the reasons, you know, within the church, it's really encouraged to go not just the required like once a year of confession, but go as often as you can to keep yourself in a state of grace uh, constantly. Cause you do not know when you are going to be called. And the idea of for a month, six months, a year of not allowing people access to that. And it varied by diocese. I'm not saying it was across the Catholic church it was a whole year without reconciliation. Um, but uh that that was something that that very much bothered, and it, it's really what prompted a part, I should say, of what prompted me to go and seek out um, kind of the more traditional Catholic communities. And what I found there was they had they they kind of abided for like a, a couple weeks of of not doing mass. Uh, confession was always open upon appointment, and. I went there and we were so used to wearing our masks at mass that uh, when I took my daughter there, the first time that we went there um, and <laughs> I get there and I got the mask, we start putting them on as we go in. And then I realize we're the only ones there and everyone's just kind of, you know, immediately shows everybody that you are not from here, which was kind of funny. They were like, Oh, well, this is a new, a new group. But well, um, hold on. Stop, stop on that for a second, because this is something that I've been speaking about uh, recently as well and it's something that uh, another conversation uh that that i recently had and it is the and and maybe the way that we come out of this but tell me because i because i felt this myself the other day not in a not i would assume it would be even more so if i was in the situation that that you just described but that it is actually the the feeling of uh so this was just in a store where you know, I, I had walked in. We have no mask mandate here, but many of the stores will just have like a thing out front. And sometimes I'll go in without a mask and I'll, you know, go back and forth. I was tired. I wasn't feeling great. So I was like, I don't even want to engage. Walked in with the mask on, then see two guys in there without masks on just shopping. And I'm like, oh, well, pff, take mine off. But it was interesting is that the feeling that came over me when I saw that was shame on my part. Was shame. That was the, that like it wasn't like severe, but like it was definitely noticeable that like, oh, I, I, I met eyes with the guys. I had my mask on and then I was like, 
you know, I felt this feeling, took the mask off. And what I really think about the feeling, the feeling was shame. And I wonder if it's just like, did you, did, what, did you have that feeling as well? Yeah. In a, in a way, I mean, I'd, I'd not been crazy about it for, I mean, like just masks in general. Right. Um, Same. And, you know, all that, but I kind of abide it. If the store required it, um, like if you go into the local like Walmart or whatever, I mean, for it, what's interesting is cause like, uh, you know, they have somebody there and it's their job, but they don't care, but they make sure you, you know, they're like, sir, we're put on a mask or whatever. So you do it. But then the second you get in the store, you know, a lot of people would just take it off because none of those stalkers give two hoots about you wearing it or not. And, you know, they're not going to get into an altercation, but I, I, I didn't like it. I didn't especially like it at mass. I thought it was ridiculous and, and not sacrilegious, but I, you know, it just, you know, like we've talked about on Twitter, I, it really, it really felt in a way like I, I was doing yoga at mass, you know, like I was doing somebody else's religious practice in, in, in the holy place. And it, it you know, it, it, it just felt that way. So when I got in there and I'm, you know, I give it to my daughter first and, you know, she puts it on and then I'm putting mine on as I walk in and like it's a greeter didn't have it. And then I kind of like looked around and I saw and a couple people, you know, look, cause every, you know, I mean, it's a very, like I had described in our, our first episode, it was packed, um, on a, on a, on a weekday, uh, which was very interesting, um, to see it, um, that full, but you know, people kind of turn around to see if they know you or, or, or whatever, as you're, you're kind of walking, I shouldn't say turn around, but you know, as you're kind of walking in, um, the people that are kind of right in the, the peripheral. And then I noticed nobody else had it on and I just kind of felt kind of, yeah. I mean, it was, it was kind of idiotic. Um, you know, like saying the wrong thing at, at a party or something like that. And immediately realizing that, that, you know, that was in, that in, shame. in oh, that yeah, shame. In, improper like just going oh right you know yeah, like uh, we don't do that here you know um but it was followed by kind of an elation of just going like oh goodness like thank you there's a group of people who understand how ridiculous this is and there is maybe one or two people they might i think they were you know some like older folks or whatever and and for whatever reason it wasn't like nobody but it was like one or two uh out of like you know 70 or 80 people or a hundred people, I can't, and I didn't count, um, that I've seen here and there uh, on on different uh, on different uh, masses that that have, but you know, and yeah, it was it was definitely a feeling of of yeah of shame of just going like oh like <laughs> you know uh, almost like being completely immodestly dressed coming into mass and people kind of. Uh, that the feeling of like, oh, like I, I probably should be a little bit more dressed up or, you know, I should have this, you know, I should show a level of respect. Uh, it was kind of like that recognition that other people were recognizing it was almost a level of disrespect of coming in here with that. Yeah, it's a, it, it is. Um, but I think that's the that's the metric. That's the metric is the metric is the feeling. You know, and I think that maybe that's kind of that's kind of what I what I was trying to get at is the the metric of you know when when you lay out a, a vi this very sort of 
litigious, you know, what do you, what do you agree with and what do you disagree with? And maybe, and if you only disagree with one thing and then someone has to search their, their, oh, what do I, is there anything that I disagree with? You know what I mean? And then they're like, oh, oh, well, 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 what does disagree mean? Did it, oh, well, I have a little bit of doubt about this thing, or I'm not sure about this thing. Am I, and it's, it's this, of of course, there should be a purity test, but I think the question just becomes like, where is the where is the purity test? And I, you know, I, I it's that mm-hmm. that thing that I laughed at about, you know, when my spiritual father said, well, <laughs> they wouldn't do it because they think they would burst into flames. That's a that's a very visceral. That's to me, that's faith. That's what faith looks like. Faith is okay that, that like you can't bring yourself to go up and to receive the Eucharist because you have a, a feeling of mortal dread about it. It's not a matter of is dread introduced to you by you searching through something and then you're not exactly, oh, I don't know on this little thing over here. And and I think I think that this is what a lack this is how a lack of precision well a lack of precision is missing the mark, right? This is how a lack of precision from someone who's supposed to be pastoring to a flock can can become in its in and of itself a stumbling block. And it's as you said from the beginning that it's like you're struggling to be precise as am I such that you don't become a stumbling block because you realize inherently that a lack of precision can can lead people who trust you astray. Yeah, I think so one of the things that uh, severely lacking in the church has been you know I I have struggled with you know with, within the church there's a lot of disagreement over Vatican too. There are some people, and most of them are more what they call sede vacantes. They're people that believe that there hasn't been a uh, a real pope elected since um, I think Paul the Sixth or before then, or maybe Pius the Tenth. And, and it's a very fringe opinion. Where, it, anyways, and and a lot of that comes with the kind of the the thoughts of modernism that have come into the church since the Second Vatican Council. And it's not that there isn't some validity to the idea that it allowed a lot of people to have cover to do things that weren't allowed or even necessarily like, if you actually read the documents, none of them say any of that, but there is somewhat a a lack of precision per se, not, not even really lack of precision, but it was just more of this culture of post-World War II Europe. And a lot of it had to do with just the massive destruction and people kind of turning against anything traditional after that much kind of death and destruction. Um, but, but anyways, so it, I kind of waffle. I don't think, you know, it's an invalid counsel or anything like that, because that, that is something that you can't do without incurring a, a sin. But anyway, I think that a lot of this move to modernize, to Protestantize in a way, the church led to some really bad catechesis in the last, probably since the boomers on really. And, there's a real need within the church 
for good, solid catechesis. And, and from our conversations, I mean, the or orthodoxy doesn't have necessarily the same level of canon or doesn't have canon law and doesn't have the same level of these sorts of things, but there is a level of catechesis when you're teaching, whether it's a adult convert or, or a, a child. Uh, I'm, I'm, am I correct in that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and I, I, it's, it's not that somebody, uh, you know, th there's a level of uh, ignorance that if you are ignorant of something, right. If you're, you know, let's just say, um, you're you're ignorant of a, a specific teaching that's not something big like the trinity or the real presence of christ but you know something on a on a on a, on a lower level uh of of de fide um if you're ignorant of it you know you aren't held accountable for not following that i mean it's it's really a lot of where sin is incurred is where, where you're willfully sinful i know that i'm not allowed to go you know, uh, have sex outside of marriage or, or once I'm married, have sex with another woman or something. And if I go and do that, I'm, I willfully know that that is a sin and then I'm still doing it um, and, and all that kind of stuff. And that is something that where you incur, incur the sin. I don't really think there's anybody that would really be that clueless about it within the church uh, of, of that specific sin. But um, you, you, owe an assent of faith to the church for the things that it teaches, you're not required to sit there and go over the entirety of the code of canon law, um, or even really reading the full page to page catechism and the explanatory notes and things like that. Um, a lot of that's more for you go, wait, my, you know, my friend that's a Baptist said that, you know, you know, we believe this or whatever, let me go and look at it. it it's more of a, of a help. I find it very helpful so they do understand the faith better. So if somebody asked me, but that's more about apologetics sort of thing. Um, and at, at a very basic level, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of what you learn and you're expected to know from just basic catechesis of, at least within the Roman rite of, you know, that you went through before you got first communion that you kind of go through at, at certain ages and then before um, uh, confirmation. And like I, I started the, the, you know, I start the kids at like five or so. I include my my younger one in there as well. Uh, but just so that they know, and these are very basic things of like, who is God? You know, who is Christ? Who is the Holy Spirit? You know, what is the Trinity? Uh, these are very basic things. I don't, you, you're not incurring a state of, of sin if you, disagree with something or if you state an opinion that's in disagreement with the church but you don't know it it's this is a lot of more a lot of like i said the bigger questions things that people do know or at least have a pretty good inkling that the church does not support one of these things and you are willfully um in contradiction of that and willfully not only just having like a like like you said we're you know, there's, there's nothing sinful in going like, I have a, like, I, I have questions about this. Like, I don't understand this or I don't understand why the church teaches that. I mean, it's not sinful to have those, you know, the, these kind of internal contradictions in your thought and trying to work your way through that. I mean, you know, St. Augustine, it's one of these um, apocryphal stories of him trying to understand the Trinity. And there's, there's story of him meeting a little boy and, 
and he's trying to put the ocean or whatever into a bucket or all the sand on the beach into a bucket. And he says that that's impossible. And the boy tells him that it would be more likely to understand how the, you know, the true nature of the Trinity than, than for him to do this. So, I mean, there's nothing sinful about not understanding um, and, and having questions and going like, man, I just don't understand how, you know, how this works. How was it? Was Mary really immaculately conceived? I mean, that's a dogma of the church. Your ascent of faith is, is not in, you having necessarily like a, a deep conviction to where you have no doubt. It's more of like a, I understand what I need to confess to the world. And it, you go through like these periods where you doubt this or that and of still not providing that sin of scandal of, of, of going on Facebook and, or talking with a friend and saying, you know what, actually, you know, I really don't believe what the church teaches on this. Uh, but to confess it publicly, to say that you do have faith, because faith is, you know, you, you don't need to put your finger in Christ's side to to have faith. So I think a lot of this comes with you need you don't you can have those internal contradictions and the dialogue and those doubts and and all that and not be incurring any any state of uh, of sin, but actually putting that doubt into action versus faith into action where you go, well, I will support, you know, this person, you know, going and, and procuring an abortion, or I will, you know, put a, a thing up on saying that I support, you know, this or that social cause that's in contradiction. At least once you put that doubt into actions where that, that comes in, but it is, you know, once again, back to a level of lack of specificity. And, and um, I think that, there is a great need and there's a lot of people working on these sorts of things within the church of really need to get down. I think that one of the, you know, internal criticism that I have of the church is this idea of like, if any organization was looking, you know, if, if a company was looking at, and this is kind of across the board, all of Christendom in the West looked at mass attendance, looked in the beliefs of the very basics of the faith of the Trinity, of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, you know, it'd be different for a Protestant or whatever. But if you looked at all those and just what you see from 1960 on, it's just, a, it, it is a decline. And if those were, if you were at a company and your sales, I'm not equating the, the, the two, but if, if, if your metrics for success we're going down at that point, you would really need to take a deep look at yourself and not go, well, you know, we need to continue the same things that we've been doing. You, you know, usually what organizations like this do is they, you need to get back down to basics. What made you successful in the first place? What got you to, to the point where you were um, on the rise, where you were? Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with just basic, basic, understandings of the faith from an early age a promotion of of uh you know communities within the church if you go to a lot of parishes around the united states i mean they're 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 dinosaurs it's a lot of older baby boomers not a lot of younger families and everybody gets out they get in their cars they go home there's none of that community where if you went back a hundred years ago Granted, a lot of it was was kind of around nationality as well. You had the Italians at their, you know, there was a mostly Italian parish, a mostly Polish parish. But like afterwards, there's constantly things going on. And without that community, and early Christians had that. I mean, they were they were their own communities. That's how they survived. That's how they were able to uh, find that. And it was not just in the the, the worship of, of 
Christ in the Eucharist and and the and the early liturgies that they had, but it was also those communities uh, that you know the teachings that were passed down that they passed down to others, and and all that kind of came together. Whereas now it's it's more kind of like a a, a sad Elks Club in a way. <laughs> the sad Elks Club. I mean, it, it's 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 interesting as I'm. As I'm taking in what you're saying and, and what I'm noticing is a difference in approach. And I mean, even a difference in terminology and sort of what is the what is the function of the Eucharist in terms of its relationship to the exact things that you're noting, uh, the community of the people, the I, I mean, the, the church as the body of Christ. In, in the sense of all of us become the body of Christ, and how do we do that in a very <laughs> visceral, literal way, is by consuming the, the body of Christ. Actually, and Christ then being able to abide in us in the body, which is very, absolutely crucial, right? That, that this is all happening not just in the, in the spiritual, symbolic realm, Right, we're not, uh, you know, uh, uh, some some sort of strange uh, yoga Hindu yoga sect. That it's like this is manifesting into the material world. This is what is happening during mass. What is happening during liturgy, and then we are I- ingesting the body of our Lord into ourselves when we are in a state of grace, and then the the Holy Spirit is is what we are praying will happen is that the holy spirit will abide in us and that it is then that is the connective tissue right that connects all of us and that's its purpose but but i see the difference in approach of you know you keep saying that you shouldn't take the eucharist if you're in a state of sin and i keep saying you shouldn't take the eucharist if you're not in a state of grace and there're two those are actually two very different approaches, right? That's interesting. Yeah, it's the difference between it's it's the difference between how Western medicine approaches health, right? Don't eat this, don't eat that, don't eat this, don't eat that, and how people in the fitness community approach health. Eat this, only this. Eat this, only this. You know, when I was when I was bodybuilding. And people would say, oh, well, what's your diet like? When you talk to somebody who's, uh, you know, who's overweight and trying to lose weight and they say, and you say, what's your diet like? They say, oh, well, you know, I'm cutting down on this. I'm not eating as much of this. And all of the things that they mention are all things that you shouldn't be eating. And this is like trying to not sin. Whereas you talk to fitness people and you ask them what their diet is, they tell you all the things they do eat lean meats, vegetables. I take this supplement. I take this vitamin. I'm taking this herb. You know, I'm drinking this amount of water. They, they tell you all of the things that they do eat because they just don't even eat the other things. And that this is the difference. So, so this is, and, and this is kind of, for me, I guess this is why it, got, it put a, a bad taste in my mouth. Because what I see is, is, the, is a, an approach that is not an approach of how do I, as a priest, create the situation where my the, those whose souls I am tending for 
to where I am giving them a protocol of fitness to where they will be able to get into a state of grace and then remain in a state of grace, as opposed to how do I be like the doctor who says, okay, well, you need to cut down on the sodas and the candy bars. I give them all the things they shouldn't be doing, as opposed to the protocol for how they should be moving through their, through their life, instituting a life of prayer, because at least my own experience in this regard, and the reason why I was attracted to orthodoxy was because as I began into the practice, all of those other things fell away. Yes, yes. Well, the flip side of that, of going, I take your point exactly where in my description of that is going like, well, you know, don't do X, don't do Y, don't do A, do do, you know B or whatever. Instead of saying, what should you do? And I think the the flip side of all this and what leads you, maybe a better way to approach it, instead of saying, don't do this and this before you get the Eucharist, right? Which, I mean, it's still valid and, and true. But that plays into the same thing that the priest was talking about. We talked about, you know, only a third of Catholics believe in the in the in the in the true presence, right? right. That that beginning that, part that beginning part is like his description is right. The the thing that gives me the the wrong feeling is the prescription, right? I want to say that first before you go on, but I think we're on the same page here. Yeah, it, it, if I, I think that, and this is not because. I mean, it's not that there hasn't been changes within Orthodox liturgies since 1054 or anything like that, um, like you know the uh, the Nikonian and all that. But the really the changes that were made when we moved away, and it's not that it's you know, like I, I like Latin for a couple of reasons, unif- unity and all that kind of stuff. But it's not really even the language that that it's the the portrayal of reverence, um, you know the. A lot of times in, in specific masses, there's Eucharistic adoration before or after this idea. And I know that Orthodoxy doesn't do this. This was uh, something that the, the church instituted kind of somewhat in response to the Protestant Reformation of like, no, we really do believe it's the body of Christ. We're going to venerate it um, um, as well as as, as consume it because you know, it's Christ's present. But these sorts of things, like when you go to the traditional pre-Vatican II masses, the amount of reverence and respect when you see everybody's going up and hands folded in prayer, and then they kneel down uh, at at the altar rail in front of the altar, um, and the priest goes, and then you receive the you know the the body of Christ on your tongue, and this idea there's a plate placed under your chin to make sure that there's not even the smallest particle that is lost off that and, and, you know, going to that unclean place of the floor. Right. And, and all these same in the, in, in the Orthodox, it's, it would be a, uh, a napkin, like a, a, you know, place placed under. And, and if, and, and if any falls, the priest will suck it up off the napkin. Yes. In Orthodox. Yeah. yeah, No, I mean that, that's the whole point. And then you, you know, like, well, they take the plate and then they, they put it uh, into the chalice and, and consume to make sure that, you know, like, this extreme reverence, it, it's some, it, all these things symbolize, we believe this is the real presence of Christ. This is not just, you know, a, a glorified piece of wonder bread, like you'll see it at a lot of the Protestant services. There, there's some that believe in the true, you know, but, you know, like if you go to the average, say like Baptist service, it's all symbolic. So who really cares? It's just grape juice and, and bread. But if you symbolically constantly inculcate the, the you know, the somebody who grows up, in that and sees that 
it's not that you won't ever, you know, po- have a possibility of rejecting the, 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 uh, the idea of the real presence, but it's very hard to not know that's what, you know, what is going on. Right. And I, mean, I think I, that I would argue, Dustin, that you, you might fall away from the church, but you probably will never lose if you grow up in that you probably will never lose a belief in the real presence of christ yeah i think it would be very hard to when you see the 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 amount of reverence for the eucharist it's very hard for you to come to any other conclusion other than this is a very sacred thing that this is the body and blood of jesus present and you know there, there's some you know people that do talk about how the fact that in the early church actually reception on the hand was the norm um, for a lot of the early church. Uh, I do think that you know sometimes changes are for for the good. I think that reception on the tongue and everything is actually a, a, a more reverential way uh, to receive it. Um, but I, I, I just think that when you start to take away all those things, you know, this is you know very. You know, what Pajot talks about constantly is that, you know, the symbolic world is just as real as the material world. And if you take away the, the symbolic nature of that leads you to or to recognizing that that's Christ, it, it there's no, you know, you can't have imagined any other outcome than what people uh, perceive falls into the material you know, it falls into the material world of, well, I see bread, it's bread, right? Versus, you know, uh, this is Christ, and it's not a symbolic nature of Christ, it's the actual nature of Christ. So, I mean, it, 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 cover, it kind of comes into, in, into both worlds. But I think that by pushing more of these symbolic reverential practices leads you to that. And then once you come to that conclusion, if you, if you believe that's the, like, that's the body of Christ and you are consuming that into your body. Like it's very hard for you to not also come to these conclusions of, Oh, I, you know, I, sh- you know, it's been six months since my last confession and I had, you know, and I remember I did this and this and this, and you know, those things are, you know, on, on my soul. Is this really something I should be doing when I'm re- receiving the divine? And I think that, uh, you know, the other flip side, like I said, was this, Re, kind of rediscovery of the mystical within the church because uh, there's a you know, very rich history of it. You know, many of the saints, you know, even doctors of the church, St. Teresa Avila, were all, you know, heavy, heavy into, into mysticism. Uh, Hildegard von Bingen, um, you know, even St. Francis, who's kind of seen more material in, materially now because, oh, well, he went out and he helped the poor and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he was very much a mystic. He received the stigmata. Um, you know, God spoke to him, um, you know, specifically on on very many occasions. Um, all these sorts of things. I mean, like mysticism is, if you read the lives of the saints, you can't come to any other conclusion that there's something beyond, you know, just saying a prayer before you eat and and just saying a couple prayers here and, and, and there, that there's there's this level of attainment. And, and within one of the things I've been researching and, and doing more um, looks at is the, the Benedictine sp- spirituality and kind of contemplating a, um, 
they have basically have a lay for for laymen as as they're called oblates where you kind of adopt the rule of saint benedict in, into your life and it's not a a a, a, a small thing there, there's some tertiary orders or third orders uh for laymen that that are kind of a lot more lax but with the oblates uh, you know you actually do take almost a profession um uh, it's not the vows of a monk um but you know they're they're modified for your for uh, the the you know person in the in the lay state of life but um you have to do like a year of discernment once you've decided and you choose an abbey to uh, adopt as your own basically as your spiritual home and a lot of that whereas although saint benedict you know there are the rules and all that a lot of that that comes out of out of this concept of of rules and ways of of living is also this heavy insistence on spiritual reading and contemplative and meditative prayer throughout the day and to kind of make it a daily not just something that you go okay well at noon i do this but kind of almost a constant state of life and and i think that a lot of that needs to be rediscovered in in, in the church because the contemplative the meditative the 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 mystical side of the church kind of replaced i shouldn't say replaced but kind of somewhat overshadowed by this weird preoccupation with what the evangelicals and the charismatic movement were doing and we kind of want to do that here because people seem to be having fun and it's you know there's there's good music and people are speaking in tongues or whatever and i have different thoughts on what that you know that is entailing but um i i think that especially in america that uh, the dominance of Protestantism kind of started to overshadow the the mystical tradition within Catholicism, and pretty, in a way, kind of put it on the back of the bookshelf. Where if you ask the average Catholic about contemplative prayer, they're not going to know anything about it. They're not going to know where to. They're not going to know where to look, and they're not going to know about any of these people. They'll hear maybe this saint had this experience or whatever, but. A lot of people will just chalk that up to, well, they were a saint, so of course God's going to give them that experience, where that is not something that's unattainable for for anybody. It just takes proper orientation. It takes proper work to understand what you're doing and, and how to get to those kind of contemplative states, and that it doesn't happen um, just because you, you spent, you know, 20 minutes or something like that, not necessarily studying that book. I mean, these are like the desert fathers. I mean, they yep. spent, I think, um, Oh, it was father Sarah from Rose's, uh, book on the, the religion of the future. And he yep. talked about the charismatics and oh, yeah. I, most of the book, most of the book is, is about yeah. what, what the problem with the charismatics and he's writing it, it 30 years ago, you know, long, yeah. well, 40 years ago. Well, it's kind of going like within these traditions, like, you know, the desert fathers, you know, and monks, they will spend lifetimes mastering this thing. And the, you know, this weird idea that, well, 20 minutes after I, you know, I went to this, you know, coffee house where all these people were meeting, I had a total mystical experience. It's not that it's impossible or anything like that. God speaks to people and calls them and gives them, you know, like, you know, Moses, it wasn't like he was spending his whole life in prayer before the, you know, the, the burning bush appeared and anything like that. It's not that that's impossible, but this idea that every single person can attain these same levels um, almost immediately in, in a lot of cases that monks will spend, you know, years or decades of their life 
trying to get to that point. People living ascetic lives in caves in the desert, you know, with nothing. Um, and then, well, you know, I met up with this, with this group for, for 15 minutes and then, and then I had the, the same thing. I, well, I, I, I mean, so, so two things. So, I mean, one on the, on the mystical and the contemplative, I, I don't think, you know, certainly in orthodoxy, people are discouraged from pursuing the ascetic monastic and, and contemplative life at that level, right? There's a definitely a big, that, that would be like the hermit level. And there's a big discouragement yeah, for, yeah. for people to, you know, to, to go and be like a St. Anthony, you know what I mean? Like this is not, although it is strong in the tradition and although, you know, the individuals who are doing that, like up on Mount Athos are considered to be the, the highest authorities on, on matters of spirituality within Orthodoxy, within Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, it still is very much discouraged, and the people who do that are are those who who are absolutely called to it, right? But I think that, like, I want to go back to, I want to go back to your point because this 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 really, I think, gets to what the problem with removing the mysticism for everybody is. Um, you know that not that because there also is, I think the there also is the risk when you say oh well mysticism is a part of this and the mystical experience is a part of this but you have to like go and like find it and it's in some order or something like that and it's not in your parish which is something that is absolutely the opposite with orthodoxy right veneration of icons wonder working icons coming into parishes you know reading the lives of the saints especially those er those early saints it's full of mysticism i mean my, you know the, the the my my patron the 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 one that i took before i was baptized and the one that i that's that and saint cyprian of antioch that i have the name and St. Mary of Egypt, I, I took before I was baptized, not knowing what would I ever be, you know, not. And, and it was wonderful that that came to fruition in the way that it did. But like the idea that she she wasn't baptized, you know, 40 years in, in the desert before she was able to uh, receive the Eucharist. And that's all she wanted to do. And then she died, you know, and but but in in the meantime, became this incredibly holy individual who was who 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 went through that. Now that's not, that's not for everybody, but when you remove the mysticism, then what you remove is that connection, that visceral connection of, yes, this is the body and blood of Christ for real. Right? Like, cause that's a mystical concept. And that's the key concept because if you have, if, if, even the laity have that mysticism deep seated. So that's my spiritual father saying it, it not facetiously that this average random Serb, right. Who's been drinking himself to death, running around carousing, doing the whole thing, but comes to liturgy and then won't go up because he really feels he knows in his heart that he will burst into flames. That's mysticism. 
And and when you have that to even down to the the least devout individual, you know, to some degree ba- based upon their their uh, ethnicity, right? It's their ethnic heritage, like it is with my with my my wife and and my children now. And and then what I got to see, which was very interesting, being around this Russian community that hadn't you know been around that hadn't had a church. But then it's like they fall right into it because it's in their very blood, you know. Um, it, you you see like, whoa, who is this person now in front of me, right? Like, where did this come from? And it is because of this mysticism is is deep within them and their understanding that it's like that's the purpose of the mysticism, and that is when when you combine that with then you see what is the tool of the Eucharist. Then you see that it's like you don't need canon, you don't need all this doctrine, because it's in the heart of the person that it that for them to be able to receive this without them bursting into flame, they know what it's going to take to 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 confess. They know what it's going to take in terms of repentance. They know what it's going to take for their relationship with Christ to to be there so that they can be healed so that the holy things can be for the holy and that they can be one of the holy. And and you don't need canon law. You don't need all of this writing. You don't need all of that. I mean, the, the early Christians were illiterate. And so th- this was the technology. It was the mysticism. It is, I think, that the, that the re-understanding of the deep impact that that can have on somebody and how they and how without needing to be intellectualized into this without needing to go through what do i believe and what do i not believe that they can know in their heart that 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 yes okay at this moment i am in a state of grace and i think that that's that's really like the core of 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 my feeling about this about this issue and this conversation right and that i think that that's where the reintroduction of mysticism the reenchantment as pajot says really is the the really unlocks everything for a christian yeah no i i i hardly agree i think that um, and, and my my discernment of this is more uh not because i can't find it elsewhere it's it's partially because i i do understand myself and my own feelings and the need for uh personally i do need a like a routine um and, and these sorts of things where I, I uh, habits to keep myself um, and, and the, the idea of uh, w- which has really helped me already by kind of going into the liturgy of the hours, the divine office, um, the, the monastic diurnal is kind of the, the, the Benedictine version of it where um, I don't chant it cause I, d- I don't know how to chant, but a reading of, of, of the Psalms and, and uh, some other prayers um, right when I wake up, in the morning. Um, and then at the end of the day, uh, I always do that right before. And it's been very helpful to be, be kind of come into that habit. And it's not that you have to have, you know, Benedict and spirituality to have spiritual habits or anything like that, but I, I have felt a real draw to it. And, and that's why I'm, I'm choosing that because there is a lot of, you know, the mysticism within uh, like local parishes. It's just, I think there's, I can't quite put my finger exact. I think the part of it has to do with the demystification of the mass that that spills over into other areas because sure. we, we have right in our, in our local area here, we have a 24 hour adoration chapel and there's people that 
that are there 24 hours a day so that Christ is never left just sitting there by himself. And so, and anybody can come at any time, but there's always one person there constantly. Um, they'll do, you know, at, at our, at our, our priest, um, at our local parish, not the, the Latin one that I, that I, I, I go to, uh, whenever I'm able to, it's, it's just, it's far enough away where it's not, uh, I'm not able to do it as much as I would like. Um, and he, uh, is, is, as a very holy spirituality towards the Eucharist, um, their order, um, they do diocesan, but their order is specifically focused towards veneration of, of the Eucharist. So every day for at least an hour, um, he, he does uh, benediction at the church and anybody can go there for that as well. Um, and th there's a deep sense of just a very, of peace and calm. It's very, you go into these adoration chapels and it's very quiet. Uh, my wife's uh, university had one where they modeled it on the on the Portincula. Um, I'm probably saying that wrong in uh, the Italian name, but it was the, kind of kind of the original church that St. Francis had rebuilt. And so it's all stone and wood beam, and it was always filled up with students. And it was very it's just a very immense sense of of kind of peace and ability to to meditate. Um, on, on whatever it was, if you had something going on with your life with connecting to Christ, uh, with, you know, to, you know, during, um, during Lent of kind of connecting with that, um, with, with that sacrifice and that, and that suffering, uh, as well. And, and just kind of being able to venerate Christ's true presence right in front of you is a very, it's a very mystical thing. It's very strange, um, when it kind of, connects with you because sometimes the first time you know you, you don't quite connect uh with the mystical uh, uh but when you kind of come there with with a very you know faithful heart and you kind of come into in, into his presence it's a it's a very it's by, by strange i don't mean weird i i just mean it's it's very not what you use not what you're used to experiencing on it on a daily basis and kind of the humdrum of life and I find that to be very helpful. Like whenever, you know, whether it's good things are happening or bad things, I find it very helpful. I can, I, that I can just stop in there whenever I want to. Um, and then kind of reconnect, not reconnect is, is, is an improper word. Um, uh, but, but connect to the divine in a very real, very present way as well, which, which ha has a lot of, I know it's it's a very I don't know, it's it's hard to I I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about where it's it's hard to kind of well it really is a mystery explain. it is a mystery so yeah putting your yeah wrapping, wrapping words around it is going to be hard <laughs> yeah it's it's I don't know I find it to to be very you know and I I almost have a a feeling when, when you know you have I'm sure you have Protestant friends and all that and 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 maybe even uh, prior to your conversion but just I don't know I I just feel there's there's such a loss when you think about going to uh, those liturgies, uh, you know, where you don't believe in the real presence, where it's, where, where that's not present and you're not able to, not able to have that. It, it just, well, um, what would even be the point? That's really what, well, I the, it, what would it's, even it's, be the point? Yeah. I if, honestly, it's not, you know, like what, what's, what's the point? It's just a, uh, it seems like an unnecessary piece of theater if if there's no real presence. What are we doing? Well, I, th well, I think with definitely within Protestant Protestantism, uh, 
you know, where, where you kind of almost have this uh, idea of, you know, personal revelation, right? And it's not that Methodists think, well, Calvinists are right as well. I mean, they obviously each believe that they're, they're correct, but um, there is that strong idea of personal revelation and that my personal interpretation of what this Bible verse says is, is you know, is, is valid. So I think that like a lot of it comes into, uh, it's about, it's about you more in a way than 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 God and your ability to discern um, in that fellowship, you know, uh, uh, truth. And it's not that personal revelation is is necessarily untrue or anything like that either. Uh, I think that's the very great use of a tradition uh, is, is kind of having that that ability to filter through, you know your thoughts on, on a certain subject or whatever, and think, look back to the great doctors of the church and the desert fathers and, 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 uh, uh, the, the early fathers of the, of the church and to kind of reread them, you know, Augustine. Um, and then, uh, um, I can't remember who is the gentleman that wrote the book that you recommended to me. I mean, he wasn't uh, an Sofroni? early father. Sof- yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's, he's one of the, he, he's, he's a very recent saint. Yeah, no, He's I was going to say the most he, recent in the Orthodox Church, but the the you know to and, and the usefulness of the saints in that way of not only can they help you come to a better understanding as well, uh, but y- your ability to to kind of understand if you are hitting that mark, uh, in, in in a sense of the way that you're perceiving something truthfully. Well, that, well that's true. Like so, so this the idea of personal revelation. I think that you're trying that you're not trying you're doing it well actually but i mean i think um the idea of personal revelation that's an issue is personal revelation that would contradict um the tradition right so personal revelation that would come into contradiction with the tradition different than personal revelation through a mystical experience that then mirrors the uh, the teachings of the church fathers from the beginning, because none of the church fathers will contradict themselves. So that's that's the key with the tradition, right? Is that the tradition never contradicts itself, but then you come across a, a you know Saint Sophron, a Saint Sophroni, and who's speaking in the modern vernacular, and who's basically taking all of the previous church fathers and then is able to articulate them then you get this real feeling of fullness right so like that's it's it's awesome to read and and like a father seraphim rose right you get the in with the modern he's not a saint not yet he may never be he's kind of controversial in in some veins but um at least the church elders that you get this this very fullness because they're drawing upon the fathers more than anything right so they're drawing upon the tradition of the church um, but the personal revelation that goes in contradiction, I think that's what you have a problem with. And I have a problem with as well. And I think for me, that's, that was part of my journey toward orthodoxy and my journey to orthodoxy was I started a practice of prayer and in starting the practice of prayer, I was getting inklings of things, right? I was getting, uh, understand uh, things things were starting to become clear to me. Connections were starting to be made to me uh, uh, with, with certain patterns, 
things in scripture. And then as, as you know, I started my catechism and started my interaction with my spiritual father. And then, you know, he, he set me to things to read and to look at and to listen to and to watch. And then, you know, the things that, that I was being taught myself uh, in, in my catechism that, that he was teaching to me, all of the things that I, that were, you know, you could call them personal revelation, right? But it's like all of those things I saw were expressions of very crude expressions. So my understanding of them was very crude. And then I read the church fathers, the lives of the saints and all of these things. And I said, oh, oh, this is like the fullness of it, right? So it wasn't that what I was receiving was in contradiction. It was that it was like, I, I was being introduced, and so then it felt these when I when I actually dug in and was able to be illumined even more. Then I was like, okay, yes, and that was sort of how I knew that it's like, okay, this is the path that I should be on. And I think that a lot of people have those sorts of personal revelations, but the personal revelations where somebody goes like, no, this scripture means this. I actually think that that is a symptom of the removal of mysticism. Because it is the mysticism that allows us to, it is the mystical practice that allows us to check ourselves, right? So in the story of St. Mary of Egypt, there's this very important section where there's a St. Zosimus, he goes out there, he's the the monk who's, it's during Lent, he's fasting in the desert, and he runs across St. Mary of Egypt, who hasn't seen anybody. She's been in the desert for decades. And she starts praying, and then she starts quoting scripture to him. And he says to her, oh, so you've read the scripture. And she says, no, I've, I've never, I can't read. I've never read it, nor has, have I ever heard anybody uh, read it ever. But the Holy Spirit makes one wise. And, and I think that that's the pattern, you know? So like she clearly, she had personal revelation. Clearly she had personal revelation, but her personal revelation when she articulated it back to this monk, he thought she was quoting scripture. That's how close to the tradition what was revealed to her was. And then that's how you know that who she was receiving it from was the Holy Spirit, right? So the use of mysticism is in discernment. It is to yeah, receive it's... it and then be able to go back and say, does this match with what other mystics have been receiving throughout the tradition? And then does that match with the the scriptures which describe the actual interaction with our lord well and that's you know kind of the episode i did before you know, talking briefly about spiritual deception i remember yeah, it oh, was I a did. i listened to it it was good it well yeah and there was um i can't remember and i wanted to include it but i couldn't find the specific story um but there was a a story it was um and i believe it was at the monastery I think it was when St. Anthony was still, I'm not a hundred percent sure. It's one of these stories that I'd heard and, and, um, or maybe it was, I read it with in the book by father, uh, Sarah from Rose. I, I I'm not a hundred percent sure, but basically the, the gist of the story is there was a, a monk and he received this vision. It was this being of light that came down and, and, and told him that he was it kind of played upon his pride that he was so worthy and holy and, and, and something along those lines that he was going to give him this, um, a garment of light yes. that would kind of illuminate. Yes. And, you know, he did, and he kind of came out and, you know, was telling all the other monks, you know, I've been chosen and all these sorts of things. And then 
uh, the 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 um, uh, the abbots or elders of of the monastery were were kind of unsure, and they just kind of it was something wasn't feeling right. And when they said, you know, we're going to take you to uh, um, Saint Anthony, and you know, he'll be able to determine because he kind mm-hmm. of uh, a lot of these great saints have the have the the, the ability to discern, you know, darkness mm-hmm. from light. And the second that they decided that and said that, then that the garment that he was wearing just basically just uh, disappeared, fell apart. Mm. And this idea that, I mean, you you know, most of us, if we saw a being of light that was talking to us and all this kind of stuff, I mean, a lot of it it would be hard not to jump to, oh, well, you know, this is an angel. This is God. But but the the tradition, the the mysticism and and the tradition there is what helps you determine, you know, darkness from light. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, not to offend anybody that may be a Mormon, but uh, I think that's exactly what was going on there. This being of light who had a, but instead of running that through the tradition of, is this correct? It was, oh, well, obviously this is, you know, even though it's a complete contradiction to everything that we know uh, in, in Christianity, uh, you know, that, God basically decided that after the apostles, pretty much the church failed and it was over. So there's going to be a new experiment needed, right? That right there on the face, anybody who had an inkling of tradi- of the tradition would have said, uh, I don't know if that's that's exactly jiving here. But um, I, yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, spiritual deception is something that, that can easily happen when you're untethered. And I think that's why you just see the proliferation of of various denominations uh, that kind of come out of the original Martin Luther um, uh, schism there is that once you allow the idea of personal revelation being truth, then anybody's concept of personal revelation and and truth then becomes, you know, a quote unquote truth. And then now you have, I mean, an uncountable amount of of different versions of, of what the truth is, supposedly. I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's true. It's it's uh, it's true. <laughs> the this is this is. I, I mean, that's that's that that comes that really comes full circle, right? It comes really full circle to the importance of. To the importance of ha- being able to have. The the one to one relationship with our Lord. That come that that the. I'm using the term technology, but only because it's like it, it is expedient uh, in, in this case. But I think f- f- people can understand it in our modern context. But that how does this how does this practice emerge and why does this practice? Why is this practice like the most? It It, it is even in even in the churches, like in the Episcopal Church, you know, marriage is not a sacrament. It's not considered to be a sacrament, but the, the Eucharist is still a sacrament. And so wh- why is this, why does this emerge in the way that it does? Why does it sustain? Why to this day, 2000 years later, can people retain the mysticism? And it's because it's, it is the means, it is the means for discernment because it is the means for that connection. And we've got to be very, we, we've, you know, we've got to be reverential, not just in, setting aside spaces for adoration we have to be reverential in in all things and if anything if anything requires precision uh if if anything 
requires that we adhere to tradition as best we can. And if, if anything requires a, a level of humility about who should and should not be approaching this thing, I, it's, that's got to be it. Well, I, I, uh, I, I, I didn't realize how long we've been going for. Um, I apologize, but I, yeah, I know well, you got other stuff to go on yeah, yeah. today. But I really appreciate you ha- having you on, uh, um, and you coming on here. And Thanks I want to, you man. know, yeah, I want to, yeah, I want to continue the, these discussions as we kind of uh, move into kind of just just various various different topics. And um, yeah, how can uh, how can people find you and follow you and, and see what you're up to? Well, it's at Cyprianus now on Twitter. It's not it's not Vin Armani anymore. So it's uh, C Y P R I A N O U S on Twitter. Other things will be moving around, so that's probably the the best. <laughs> that's probably the best place uh, to do it. So I'm I'm in many ways I'm glad to be shedding shedding a name that um, hasn't represented me for a while. So, uh, so that's probably the best place. Twitter. I'm, I'm active there. Um, yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a great conversation. I appreciate it. I I'm, I'm walking away edified. So I appreciate you for that. Well, thank you as well. I, I feel the same.